All right, everybody. It has been quite a weekend as we start this Monday, March 13th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And where we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, daylight saving time, March Madness selections, the Oscars, <laughs> and most importantly, like the biggest bang scare in like more than a decade. What a weekend. On Sunday night, I said to my husband, I'm like, I'm really tired and I don't know why. He's like, you don't know why? He's like, <laughs> daylight saving. It yeah. basically rattled off all that. It's been a really dramatic weekend, uh, a really uh, concerning weekend for a number of folks impacted by a few of these stories. We haven't even mentioned California, which we'll get to uh, in this podcast as well. So, Jill, let's uh, let's get rolling here. All right, let's get to the headlines. The U.S. government steps in and says that customers at Silicon Valley Bank will have access to their money Monday morning as they shut down a second bank, this time on the East Coast in New York. Overseas enemies Saudi Arabia and Iran agree to restore relations. That deal brokered by China and Saudi Arabia also laying out what it would take to make peace with Israel. Meta, the parent company of Instagram and Facebook, reportedly working on a competitor to Twitter, an early start to the allergy season. Selection Sunday, who's in and who's out. The latest from the Oscars. And Mosh has on this day in history. A special day for our planet in the solar system we don't talk about enough, Jill. Um, all right, I will anxiously await that, Mosh. For now, though, let's start with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the biggest story in the financial and banking world, and what we know. After a very stressful weekend, some are breathing a sigh of relief as we start the week. The U.S. government worked all weekend to contain fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, an institution that was a major lender and deposit holder to some of the biggest names in the tech world and nearly half of all Silicon Valley startups. Silicon Valley Bank had more than $200 billion in assets. It experienced a bank run last week. That means depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. So we'll have more on that in a minute. After a dramatic weekend on Sunday, banking regulators laid out their plan to stem the crisis, announcing that all depositors at SVP, as it's being called, would be made whole and have full access to their entire deposits come Monday morning. U.S. regulators also shutting down Signature Bank, which is based in New York. It's also one of the main banks of the crypto industry. In a joint statement, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC said that Signature Bank had a similar systemic risk as SVB and that customers there would also have full access to their deposits on Monday. According to the statement, they are not calling this a bailout. They claim that no taxpayer money will be used to implement their plan. The Fed is also creating a new bank term funding program aimed at safeguarding other banks impacted by the market instability of the SVB failure. But I do want to backtrack a bit. On Friday, the U.S. government, through the FDIC, officially took over Silicon Valley Bank, putting nearly $175 billion in customer deposits under the regulator's control. The government held an auction over the weekend to try and sell the bank. As of this podcast recording, it appears there were no takers, at least none that actually signed on the dotted line. The government's priority was to make sure that customers who had more than $250,000 in their accounts would be made whole. That number, $250,000, that is the maximum covered by FDIC insurance. So all weekend, the concern was that depositors with larger amounts in their accounts wouldn't be repaid in full. So for example, some larger companies had tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars in bank accounts. 
And we're worried about making payroll this week. So the streaming company Roku, for example, had $487 million, a quarter of all of its cash at the bank. Again, insurance only covers up to $250,000 per account. Most you have been covering this all weekend. Why exactly did SVB fail? Yeah, it's important to backtrack here because, you know, there's comparisons thrown out, especially online, like, oh, this is like the Great Depression with a bank failure. And other people tried to compare it to 2008. This is a very unique situation. So let's set the table here. Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the United States. This failure, the biggest in about 15 years, and it is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. So what was Silicon Valley Bank? They were around for about 40 years, and this was the bank for the startups. They claimed to have half of all startups, major tech companies, as their clients. They gave them really great rates on loans, uh, and as part of that, the uh, tech companies, startups would have to put all their money in the bank. And in recent years, you've seen great boom times, a lot of venture capital money pumping. They saw their assets at the bank triple in just three years. They had about $60 billion uh, just in 2019. That went to $180 billion in 2021. At the time, the customers are flush, right? They just got some venture capital money. So they didn't need much money from the bank itself. So like many other banks, Silicon Valley Bank wanted to put this money to work. They wanted to put it in various funds in order to make their own money. And they did it in relatively low-risk assets, at least typically low-risk assets, like treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and these are post-2008 mortgage-backed securities. So these are much more legitimate than back in the day. But all these funds had certain schedules, so that money was not immediately available. But what has happened in the past year and a half? Well, the market's been dropping. Tech market has been particularly bad. Venture capital money is drying up. So there's not much in the way of new startups coming into the bank. At the same time, the existing startups are like, yo, we need money because we're not getting as much money from the VCs anymore. So they start to pull out their money. So fast forward to last week, Wednesday, Silicon Valley Bank announces, actually, we don't have enough liquidity right now. If more people want to pull money out, we need to raise some funds. We need to raise about $2 billion. Now, that is not atypical of banks, but it so happened that on Wednesday, another bank failed, Silvergate Bank. You might not have heard of it. If you're in the crypto world, you have. That was the bank of the crypto world. So that fails on Wednesday. And a move that had some very bad timing uh, and a release that was very, very detailed, people then see, oh my God, crypto bank is gone and now startup bank has issues. So people start to immediately pull their money out. Venture capital firms get on their Telegram threads, on their WhatsApp threads, et cetera, and tell all their clients, get out, get out. In a matter of 24 hours, Jill, nearly $50 billion was pulled out of the bank. Now again, Banks don't have all of that money available, right? That's not how banks work. Any bank is susceptible to a bank run. And so over the course of Thursday into Friday, they basically went to the negative in terms of immediate liquidity. The government then takes them over on Friday. They find that the bank at that moment had a negative cash balance of a billion dollars because, again, they couldn't sell off all their stuff quick enough to bring in enough money to pay everybody. Think about it like a gym, like an Equinox or a Crunch. The only way gyms work is if all their members don't show up at the same time. Otherwise, there's no equipment available. Think about the bank the same way. Banks are not built for everyone to pull out their money at the same exact moment. You may have seen It's a Wonderful Life, the film. They depict the bank run. And that is really an encapsulation of of what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. Moshe, I do love that analogy. Um, I am thinking about Equinox about 10 years ago when I used to go on Saturday morning and have to wait like 45 minutes for a treadmill. Um, So it's not the same thing at all, but I totally get what you're talking about. 
Just not not built for everything. Not built for everybody at the same time. Not built for everything, everywhere, all at once. And not, of course, to the Oscars, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, so the big question, how far this would spread, the concern was that a major move from the government not to guarantee those deposits would mean that many startups who banked with the bank would go belly up, destroying a generation of startups, perhaps the next Google or Apple. The other major concern is bank contagion that customers of other mid-sized banks would move their money to bigger banks that have been previously deemed too big to fail. Remember, the government bailouts of big banks like Citi, J.P. Morgan, and others in 2008 were deemed too big to fail, um, coined by Andrew Ross Sorkin. Uh, So you have the collapse of SVB. And then the surprise was the Signature Bank fail. Signature, based again in New York, it specialized in providing banking services to law firms. It also made a big bet on crypto banking, which took a really big hit after that sector imploded over the past few months. The shutdown of Signature Bank is the third largest in history. At the same time, there is no expectation that a larger financial collapse is imminent, like in 2008. Silicon Valley Bank was large, but it had a unique clientele servicing nearly exclusively the tech world and VC-backed companies. It did a lot of work with the particular part of the economy that's been hit hard in the past year, the tech world. Most other banks are far more diversified across multiple industries, customer bases, and geographies. The most recent round of what are called stress tests by the Federal Reserve of the largest banks showed that all of them would survive a deep recession and a significant rise in unemployment. Yeah, and that was one of the lessons from 2008. You know, make sure the big banks are healthy. The issue we have here, Jill, is this is sort of like the tier two of banks, right? We were talking about Silicon Valley Bank being the 16th largest bank. Some other banks Thursday and Friday, they were starting to get questions. Were those in that tier, kind of like 10 and below, the ones that don't receive the rigorous stress tests from the government? So one of the questions from all of this is whether regional banks need tighter regulations, whether reforms need to be passed that basically put these kind of high-level stress tests on these regional banks. There were a bunch of banks that were receiving scrutiny, including First Republic Bank, others uh, in that sort of mid-tier bank range. What I find interesting here, Jill, is the nuance here because people were very much like, wait, I can't believe they bailed out another bank. And the administration saying here, we didn't bail out the bank. We bailed out the depositors. We bailed out the people who had nothing to do with the bank's investment strategy. These are people, I interviewed one of them on Sunday on my Instagram feed, Her name is Janet Liriano. She has a startup called Inaru, a a coffee startup. She was talking about the thousands of startup entrepreneurs, many of them, you know, who aren't, you know, flying in private jets or have tens of millions of dollars, who just happen to be using the bank to put their money into because they gave really good loan rates to startups. They specialize in startups and they were going to be impacted here. And clearly the government saw that. And so they're like, listen, this is a bailout for those depositors. This is a bailout to ensure that a generation of startups can continue to stay alive, stay afloat here, pay their employees and grow because it's the future of our economy. And this is not a bailout for the banks. And they made a point, and it's interesting, uh, Jill, we'll have to look into whether this is a distinction without the difference of saying taxpayers didn't bail this out here. This is a separate insurance fund. So some people are saying, oh, you're just printing some more money, government, to do this. At the end of the day, they were genuinely concerned that this could be a horrendous week and the fear of a bank run could jump from bank to bank to bank, banks that had nothing to do with what was going on at Silicon Valley Bank. Moshe, I think that you make a really good point. A lot of these businesses would be considered small businesses, you know, run by 
as you say, startups run by entrepreneurs, uh, a couple of those uh, slumberkins, another one, a kids co, uh, basically asking customers to to help them stay afloat and make payroll, offering discounts on products, uh, saying, hey, stock up now <laughs> and just help us at least get through this financial mess. It feels as we record this on Sunday night that uh, we dodged a bullet on Monday. Obviously, you know, more details will come out this week. We'll learn more. And again, will the government step in here to increase the requirements and scrutiny of banks in terms of what they do with their money, how much risk they can take with their money? There are the lessons from 2008, and there appear to be some new lessons that we need to learn from 2023. I saw on some of the Sunday shows a lot of Democrats pointing fingers at Republicans and the Trump administration for basically taking a lot of the teeth out of the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed uh, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Some Republicans saying, look, we don't need any more regulation, but perhaps just some better oversight. By the way, just keeping score here, Jill, that rollback of some of the Dodd-Frank regulations in 2018, 17 Senate Democrats were part of that, including Mark Warner, uh, who was asked about that on Sunday. And he says he still stands by the decision that he feels that some of these mid-sized banks did need some regulatory relief. So it was bipartisan, though, though signed by President Trump. Democrats were involved. Some Democrats were involved in that rollback a couple of years ago. Okay, Moshe, a lot more to get to on the podcast, uh, including Mark Zuckerberg's plan to take on Elon Musk. Uh, Could we say a new Twitter competitor? We'll talk all about it after the break. For now, though, let's get to some of our sponsors, starting with Athletic Greens. I have been taking their AG1 supplement in the mornings, the Athletic Greens AG1 powder, just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy. It is quick. And it lets you get on with your day knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer. You could also get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, let's also talk about Harry's here. Harry's is a brand I've been using for years now for a great shave. My wife actually found their aftershave a couple of years ago and I've been a loyal customer ever since. I then recently tried their shaving cream as well. And now I am so excited that they are joining us as a partner with a special deal for Mo News listeners. I just got one of their five blade razors as well. It has a nice weighted handle. And what's great is with their Truman Shave trial set, you can get the shaving gel and the razor. It is a $15 value that for a limited time, you can get for $3 over at harrys.com slash Mo News. So rare these days to hear that anything is $3. Again, the Truman Shave trial set includes a five-blade razor, a nice weighted hand, foaming shave gel, a travel cover. You can schedule replacement blade delivery whenever you need them with refills for as little as $2. I am genuinely a big fan of Harry's, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. So I'll tell you how to get it one more time. That $15 Truman Shave trial set right now available for just $3 over at harrys.com slash monews. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. 
Okay, time now for the speed read from the Washington Post. China brokers Iran, Saudi Arabia detente, raising eyebrows in Washington, D.C. On Friday, China announced it successfully brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to open up diplomatic relations again. The agreement reestablishes those relations between the arch nemeses for the first time in seven years and reopens their respective embassies. Ties between the two countries were cut back in 2016 after the Saudi embassy in Iran was overrun after the Saudis executed a Shiite cleric in Saudi Arabia. Now, the signing of the accord in Beijing, which the Biden administration considers its number one geostrategic threat, represents the latest effort by Xi Jinping to stake out a larger political presence in the Middle East. That is where the U.S. has been the dominant power for decades, exerting influence in the oil-rich region vital to the world's energy security. There's a lot happening here, Jill. At its core, we should just explain that this rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia has taken place for years at times, not just a rivalry, but open military conflict. Saudi Arabia is, of course, the home place of Islam, Mecca, Medina. It sees itself as the leader of the Muslim world. It is home to the Sunni Islamic sect, uh, and they've been exporting in Saudi Arabia their interpretation of Islam across the region for years. Now, this has been challenged since 1979 by the Iranian Ayatollahs, Iran being home to the Shia Islam branch. They want to bring their brand of Islam to the rest of the Muslim world. Without getting too detailed, this split in Islam between Shiite and Sunni started more than a thousand years ago over who would succeed the Prophet Muhammad as the leader of the faith. And there are variations in how they pray and a certain belief system, but for the most part, relatively minor distinctions. There are many more Sunnis than Shias in the world, but these days there are alliances across the region. Iraq is majority Shia. The leader in Syria, Assad, uh, tends to lean towards the Shias. Hezbollah, the terror group in Lebanon, also Shia. That's part of the Iran axis. Then you have the Saudi axis. They're allied more with the Gulf states, most of the Gulf states, as well as Egypt. So they've been on the opposite sides, the Saudis and the Iranians, for a number of years in the conflicts ranging in Syria, in Yemen. They were on the brink of war a couple of years ago when Iran actually uh, shot some missiles into Saudi Arabia. But now you have this agreement. They're not going to be singing Kumbaya anytime soon, by the way, given the uh, differences I just laid out. But D.C. is alarmed by this. The Biden White House is alarmed by this, in particular because this is China saying, listen, two can tango at this point. We are global players. And by the way, you know that thing you guys care about in Washington, human rights? We don't care about them. So we're willing to deal with the Iranians and the Saudis. Uh, we don't care what they do to their own people because we want their oil and we want to be influential. And this comes as relations have hit a low point, both within the U.S. and Iran and between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia after the execution of the American journalist a couple of years ago that has been linked to the crown prince. And at the same time, really interesting timing from the Saudis this weekend. They also announced their price for normalizing relations with Israel, including security guarantees from the U.S., help with developing a civilian nuclear program, and fewer restrictions on U.S. arms sales. If that somehow is sealed, the deal could set up a major political realignment of the Middle East between the home of Islam and the Jewish state. Both who view Iran as an adversary, Saudi Arabia's ambitious request offers President Biden the chance to broker a dramatic agreement that would reshape the region. A normalization deal is a major goal of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, capping what he considers a legacy of increasing Israel's security against its archenemy, Iran. So needless to say, 
things in the Middle East, unsurprisingly complex, Jill. Uh, you have Saudi and, and Iran willing to talk to each other again, open up their embassies. At the same time, you have the Israelis and the Saudis who still view uh, Iran as a threat. And Saudi Arabia being like, if you give us a bunch of stuff, we will actually make a peace agreement with the Israelis here. In particular, that civilian nuclear uh, program is interesting, Jill, because that's basically the Saudis being like, let us have a civilian nuclear program, kind of like Iran does, that, by the way, with a couple tweaks, we could make some nuclear weapons too. And that's always been the concern, is that the Saudis with nukes, the Iranians with nukes. Anyway, frankly, any more countries with nukes, always trouble for the world. So we will continue to monitor uh, the interesting web that the Middle East weaves on a daily basis. From the AP, yet another onslaught of rain, snow, and gusting winds are set to hit major swaths of California starting today. The National Weather Service said the latest atmospheric river could exacerbate severe flooding that overwhelmed the area in recent days, prompting a levee failure and widespread evacuation Saturday in farming communities near the state's central coast. Monday's incoming rain and snow is expected to extend from central California to Oregon and northern Nevada. Wind gusts of up to 50 miles per hour are expected in some places and could damage power lines and snap tree branches. Over the weekend, up in the mountains, more than 20 inches of snow fell at a measuring station in the Sierra Nevada, and more is expected. The snowpack now nearly twice the average and the highest in about four decades. The concern is that rain could quickly melt it, leading to flash flooding. Jill, this is their 11th atmospheric river of the season, the one that is set to begin today. And it comes as more than half of California is either under flood watch or winter storm warning. As that last atmospheric river receded, another one approaches Highway 1. Many of you may have driven that. It's the beautifully scenic Pacific Coast Highway. is closed at several points along Big Sur due to major flooding. That area received more than a foot of rain over two days. And that, of course, comes as that soil there is already saturated. Rescues have continued. Dozens of people being rescued across the state. Uh, more than 8,500 people evacuated in that central region on Saturday. And sadly, the death toll is now up to 13 down in San Bernardino County. Those are the mountain communities where they've received more than 100 inches of snow in places. And people have been stranded for up to two weeks Jill, just remarkable. There's a few people who live in the Tahoe, Truckee area who follow Mo News, and they send in photos of just the, the snow they've got in that region. More than 44 feet of snow in that region. 44 more than feet? 44 feet over the last few months, 200% of the average snowfall. And the big concern as things get warmer and this rain comes in is just the flooding that could unleash on the region. And which is remarkable is we've been talking about the drought stricken California, and now we're just talking about these massive flash floods that could be happening. Staying with weather from USA Today, millions of spring allergy sufferers are dealing with symptoms even sooner than usual. Despite it being only early March, several regions of the United States are experiencing springtime conditions three to four weeks earlier than usual. And this year isn't an outlier. Researchers predict pointing to climate change as responsible for worsening allergy seasons. According to Climate Central, a nonprofit focused on climate research, warming temperatures and shifting seasonal patterns are affecting both the length and the intensity of allergy season in the U.S. So Climate Central is out with that new report. We'll link to it in the show notes. Springtime has arrived officially three weeks earlier than usual for a number of southeastern states. Several of you, by the way, in the Houston area sent me photos of just the amount of pollen that has falling on your cars. In the mid-Atlantic and northeast region, spring arrived four weeks ahead of schedule. 
Areas of Texas, Arkansas, Ohio, Maryland, Jersey, New York are seeing the earliest signs of spring since the 1970s. In Atlanta, the pollen count climbed to an extremely high range last week, the earliest it has done so in 30 years of record keeping. Jill, I know a lot of people are struggling with this right now, and it appears with this early spring that folks are going to be dealing with allergy season way longer than they typically did. From the newsletter Platformer, Facebook and Instagram owner Meta is working on a new decentralized text-based social network, sound familiar, that could compete with Elon Musk's Twitter. The tech newsletter Platformer reported that the project, which is codenamed P92, would be built as a standalone app that users would log in using their Instagram credentials. The move could help Meta attract some of the Twitter users who are looking for alternatives after Musk took over and changed some of the site's rules and led to some companies to stop advertising on the platform. A Meta spokesperson confirming the news, saying that they do believe there is an opportunity for a separate space where creators and public figures can share timely updates about their interests. So they have WhatsApp, they have Instagram, they have Facebook. I've been waiting for them to get into the space, especially in the fall when Elon was dealing with some of the struggles, initial struggles with Twitter. Uh, notably on Twitter, Jill, someone wrote, why though? Is Zuckerberg like, people are mad at Elon Musk. I'll make an alternative because everyone loves me and Facebook so much. Elon got attention to that tweet and just wrote copycat. <laughs> That's actually funny. We are talking about a competition here between two of the richest people in the world, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. This project would allow Meta to expand its offerings that reportedly is being led by the head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, who spent years building a newsfeed over at the Facebook side, then took over Instagram a couple years ago after the founders there left uh, following the Facebook purchase. It will be interesting to see adoption here because, of course, people do have their issues with Mark Zuckerberg in the Facebook world. And it'll be interesting because most of... Facebook's big achievements, big apps post Facebook were all purchased, not built by Facebook. So will they be able to build a competitor to Twitter, convince people to come over? Jill, there are a couple on the right, right? You have Trump's Truth Social uh, and Parler that sort of right-wingers, conservatives have jumped to. And then there was Mastodon on the left. Uh, that, that hasn't really taken off. So it will be interesting to see whether, you know, Mark Zuckerberg will be able to get people to come over. I think it's interesting that they're trying to do this as a standalone app. It feels like they'd have better luck doing it as a feature in mm. Instagram or in Facebook. This is sort of from their playbook. They kind of copy other apps. Uh, for example, Snapchat, right? That's how they came up with stories or TikTok, which is now they're doing all of the reels. Uh, so this isn't totally out of the realm of what they do. I, again, I'm surprised that they want it to be this standalone app. Jill, it's interesting because they can go both directions. Remember Facebook Messenger was part of Facebook. They spun it away. And at times, the criticism of Facebook and Instagram is they're getting too busy, too many features. So that might be their thinking here. But, you know, leave it to them to launch it, test it. Of course, it's very much in the early stages here, it sounds like. And, you know, we'll see how they're able to get mass adoption in it. And it might involve, you know, integrating into one of those larger apps at some point. From CBS Sports, the Alabama Crimson Tide, the Houston Cougars, the Kansas Jayhawks, and the Purdue Boilermakers were named as the number one seeds in the men's NCAA Tournament Sunday. 
Alabama earned the top seed for the first time in school history. The Kansas Jayhawks return as one of the top seeds after capturing the fourth national championship in school history last season. Action in the 68-team tournament begins Tuesday with two play-in games in the first four. March Madness gets into full swing Thursday and Friday with 32 games spread over eight cities. The Final Four is set for April 1st and 3rd at NRG Stadium in Houston. So if you didn't already start filling out your brackets last night, uh, you have a couple days to do so. And then get ready to not have any of your emails answered after about noon Eastern time on Thursday, if memory serves me right, Jill. I'm still bitter, Mosh, just about uh, my Wolverines not making it this year. There's always the NIT, uh, Jill. I don't know if they accepted their invitation to kind of the backup tournament there. As far as the early betting lines here, right now, Houston has come in the favorite, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, as of Sunday night, 11 to 2 odds uh, to win it all. Alabama, 50 to 2 and then Kansas at 9-1 to one odds. They're trying to become the first team to win back-to-back titles since 2007. On the women's side, their tournament also begins this week. The number one seeds are South Carolina, Indiana, Virginia Tech, and Stanford. South Carolina Gamecocks, Jill, are the only undefeated college basketball team in the nation. They're running a 38-game winning streak dating back to last year. Of course, they won last year's championship trying to repeat it again. They haven't lost a single time this year. The women's final four also taking place in Texas. That'll begin on March 31st. All right, and finally from Variety now, the comedy Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was exactly that at the Oscars Sunday night, taking home seven awards. Best overall picture, best actress for Michelle Yeoh, best supporting actor for Kei Hui Kwan, and best supporting actress for Jamie Lee Curtis, among the many statues they took home last night. Yo became the first Asian woman to ever win Best Actress. Jamie Lee Curtis won her first Oscar in more than 40 years of acting. Notably, she gloats about the fact that she is, in fact, a Nepo baby. Both of her parents were Oscar nominees, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Kei Hui Kwan gave a really powerful Best Supporting Actor acceptance speech last night about how he almost gave up on his dream for lack of work in Hollywood, but he persisted and he talked about where it all began. My journey started on a boat. I spent a year in a refugee camp. And somehow, I ended up here on Hollywood's biggest stage. They say stories like this only happen in the movies. I cannot believe it's happening to me. This, this is the American dream. In non-everything, everywhere news, the best actor went to Brendan Fraser. He went through an incredible physical transformation into a 600-pound reclusive professor in The Whale. In the documentary category, Navalny won. That's the film about the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who's been in prison by Vladimir Putin for a couple of years now. It took home best documentary. He remains in prison, and his wife, Yulia, joined the filmmakers on stage saying, my husband is in prison just for telling the truth. Stay strong, my love. Notably, Rihanna and Lady Gaga both performed on stage Sunday night. Their nominated songs, Gaga apparently went back and forth, back and forth, but finally agreed to perform her song from Top Gun. But both of them lost to a song called Natu Natu by two Indian musicians who performed it for the film RRR. Comedian Jimmy Kimmel hosted the award show, which lasted about four hours, one of those long telegasts. He joked that uh, no-show James Cameron wasn't there because even for James Cameron, This was too long, and that's saying something. Cameron, of course, was nominated for his Avatar sequel. Also a no-show last night, Tom Cruise, whose Top Gun sequel was up for multiple awards. Cruise said he couldn't make it because he's currently filming Mission Impossible 8 overseas right now. 
All right, now to On This Day in History, on this March 13th, a happy 242nd birthday to Uranus. Well, I mean, Uranus really probably billions of years old, but... That's how we're saying it? <laughs> I've always it heard Uranus? scientists call it Uranus. <laughs> I always feel like, I feel a little dirty calling it Uranus. Like, I feel like I'm back to middle school jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I'm actually being serious. Isn't that, I thought that was the correct pronunciation. Listen, I, I imagine several of you who listen and will inundate me with pronunciation uh, corrections and fact checks on Instagram. Let us know. I just feel more proper calling it Uranus as opposed to Uranus. But listen, we both have gotten out there on this podcast. But Jill, let's get to the history here. On this day in 1781, English astronomer William Herschel, I think it was Herschel or Herschel, oh, uh, <laughs> officially observed the seventh planet from the sun. It was named for the father of the god Saturn, Saturn being the sixth planet from the sun, Uranus being the seventh planet from the sun. It was long mistaken as a star because of the planet's dimness and slow orbit. But then thanks to William Herschel, 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 we discovered Uranus, Uranus, Jill, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I'm sticking with Uranus. Sorry. <laughs> I'm too old to change course now. I, I've gone 40 somewhat years calling it Uranus. Because then later in the solar system, you have Pluto, which was a planet, a non-planet. Is it a planet? So we just need, we need some stability in the solar system. All right, let's fast forward here. Happy 10th birthday to Pope Francis. Okay, he's actually 86 years old. But on this day in 2013, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, was officially elected Pope of the Catholic Church, taking the name Francis. So his title, Pope Francis, is 10 years old. Bergoglio, 86 years old. Anyway, he succeeded Benedict XVI, who had resigned. He had become the first Pope to resign in like 500 plus years. We're still waiting whether Pope Francis will follow that new tradition or just stick it out till the end. All right, a bit of pop culture history here. My cousin Vinny turns 31 years old today came out on this day, March 13th, 1992. My biological clock is ticking like this. I don't think <laughs> I did my best Marissa Tomei impression, but that is just what pops in my mind when I hear that movie. So many iconic lines from that film. The two youths. The two youths. <laughs> the two youths over there. Every time I see kind of an eccentric lawyer on like court TV or any trial, you know, you're just thinking like, ah, they're not like Vinny. All right, 24 years ago today, on March 13th, 1999, Believe by Cher reached number one on the Billboard charts. And sticking with music here, 47 years ago tonight, 1976, Oh What a Night by the Four Seasons reached number one on the Billboard charts. Of course, that song, Jill, written about December 1963, Oh What a Night, it actually was originally set to take place in 1933 and be about the repeal of Prohibition. But the uh, group got together, Frankie Valli and a couple other band members are like, no, no, no. I want the song to be about one of the band members first time with a woman. So they fast forward it and made it Oh, What a Night about December 1963. But not to confuse you further, the song came out in 1976. That's so interesting that it was supposed to be about the repeal of Prohibition that changes everything. Yeah, they're just in the recording studio. They're like, this is a song about getting the right nah. to drink again. And they're like, nah, let's write about my first time with a woman. <laughs> and let's make our song in 1976, not about 1933, but about 1963. For those of you keeping a score at home. Uh, all right. I think we covered just about everything in this podcast today. A big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the app store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. For the latest and greatest, I'm trying to get some rest on this Monday, Jill. It's been quite a uh, 
a chaotic weekend covering <laughs> uh, the banks, but we'll see what the news cycle brings today. Thank you for listening to the Mo News.